Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, uh, one of the things that I've just become fascinated about is just how do you grow a church? How do you scale it? And having been through some of that myself, I got to tell you, it's a real challenge as a leader. And that's why I think you're going to absolutely love the conversation I had today with Rusty George. Rusty is the lead pastor of Real Life Church in California. And I actually, this is kind of fun. I just got back from hanging out with him. Recently, we'd never met. I interviewed him months ago for the podcast, and he turned out to be at a gathering that I was at uh, this week. So we got to hang out, have dinner together. It was a lot of fun. So now we're buds, which is which is great. And I think you will be by the time you're done with uh, with Rusty as well. Also, hey, I just want to say thank you so much because we record these things in advance to those of you who uh, took some great selfies uh, and shot me some video about how you listen to the podcast. And so all of you on long long tractors commutes and like I never thought about this as a guy, but uh, some of you, um, one of you in particular, listens while you put on your makeup in the morning. So uh, female listeners, when you do that, hey, that's real cool. It's just that was a new category for me. So if you're listening to this while you're getting ready for the day or you're cutting the grass or you're on your commute or you're on your run or, or whatever you happen to be doing, hey, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Thank you to everybody who continues to leave ratings and reviews on iTunes as well. You're helping to get the word out. We got some special stuff planned for the summer. I'm going to do some Ask Carrie episodes again, so keep the questions coming. We have a giant backlog, and I'm getting back to that this summer, so that'll be a lot of fun. Hey, I want to say a special shout out to a few of the people who helped you bring today's podcast to you. I want to thank EA Help for their sponsorship of the podcast. Did you ever notice like your week gets consumed with things that just it shouldn't be consumed by? I got an email the other day from a leader who's like, man, and now... It's Friday. I got to do what I was supposed to do on Monday, but is we got hijacked. And I lived way too long in that territory. And I've had to learn along the way that there's some things that really only I can do and things that I should do. And the rest, you delegate. So an EA Help virtual assistant will help shoulder your administrative burdens so that, frankly, you can get back to doing uh, what only you can do. Also want to thank Enjoy Stewardship Solutions. They are incredibly helpful when it comes to raising resources for your ministry. And And wouldn't it be amazing if your church was fully funded? I mean, could you imagine if you just had the money to do what you wanted to do with ministry? Well, that's what Enjoy Stewardship Solutions does. And they are also helping us not only on the podcast, but on my email list. So if you're not yet signed up, for um, email subscriptions to carrynewhoff.com. You can do that. Just drop on over to my website, carrynewhoff.com, click the dialog box, sign up, and uh, we're going to get you super helpful resources, including a free ebook. So if you're on the list, you know all about that. If you're not, get on there today. Just go to carrynewhoff.com. And thank you, Enjoy Stewardship Solutions, who is bringing that to you. Also, one of my absolute favorite things is to connect with you in real life. That's what I love to do. And we got a couple opportunities that you can jump in on. The Orange Tour is coming back this fall. I'm going to be at more cities than ever before. You can go to orangetour.org to register. And this is cool. We come to your community so you can bring your whole team. 
Isn't that fun? If you've never been part of the Orange Tour, man, you don't know what you're missing. And I'm going to be in, I think, like a dozen cities this fall. It's going to be great. So make sure you go to orangetour.org. And then while you're at it and sort of camping out in Orange World, head on over to rethinkleadership.com. It's a conference that we ran for the very first time, only happens once a year, April. And uh, it was spectacular. We loved it. And it's a unique experience. If you just head over to rethinkleadership.com, you'll see what I'm talking about. You'll also get the very, very best rate. And hurry, because uh, that thing is going to sell out fast this year based on the uh, feedback that we got for year one. So that's April of 2017. Don't miss out get the early bird rate. I'm just really looking forward to connecting with you because I'll be on a lot of the Orange Tour stops and at Rethink Leadership. So that's orangetour.org and rethinkleadership.com. Super excited to bring you this conversation today with Rusty George. So here we go. Well, it's a thrill for me today to have Rusty George. Welcome, Rusty, to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to have you. So uh, you're doing ministry in California. I know we have a ton of California listeners. I think like, I think California is the number one U.S. state that reads my blog. Did you know that? Well, I think it's just because of me logging on constantly. <laughs> so I'm helping your numbers. <laughs> that must be it. Or, you know, I sent some spam bots into California to jack up the stats. I don't know what it is, but you're not a native Californian. You've been there almost 13 years as the pastor of Real Life Church, and you took over from Kyle Eidelman, another name that a lot of our listeners would know. Uh-huh. Uh, so tell us a little bit about how you got there, how you got into ministry, and your journey so far. Yeah, well, I grew up in Kansas, okay, in okay. Wichita, Kansas, the middle of the country. Um, so I'm still uh, celebrating the Kansas City Royals winning the World Series. That's oh, uh, we, 30 years. I think, I think this is over this podcast interview. <laughs> I know. Because who did you defeat Jays. to get there? It was the Toronto oh, Blue Jays. I remember. I didn't know we'd get past them. So, But being was- very Canadian, I, I, I can say I think you deserved, you outplayed us in that series. We I think, think we could have <laughs> taken the mat. Sorry, New York. But um, think- yeah, congratulations. So, that's, that's good. Uh, that, was, uh, that was wonderful. So I grew up there and I uh, happened to attend a church um, that I just, and I'm a little bit of a strange case. I really liked going to church as a kid <laughs> I li- and I, and I liked the youth stuff, but I liked the, um, the main service my parents went into as well because the, the, the teacher was so dynamic. Hmm. Well, so at an early age, I began thinking about ministry. Then I happened to have a few really great youth pastors that, that really kind of guided me in that direction. Ended up graduating from high school, going to college in Joplin, Missouri at a school called Ozark Christian College which is where Kyle Eidelman's dad was the president. And so though Kyle's a few years younger than me and we weren't necessarily in school together, we went to the same school and crossed paths that way. I ended up out in Kentucky, in Lexington, Kentucky for about nine years. And during that time, Kyle spent some time in Louisville then came out to California to plant this church. Kyle and I had lunch one day and I was quizzing him about planting a church because I was thinking about doing that. And little did I know, he was quizzing me about life in Kentucky because he was thinking about doing that. You did a swap. We did. We did. Um, On his way out the door, he put my name in. They contacted me. I never thought I'd live in California, but it's been a real, a real blessing um, and a, a wild ride for the last 13 years. Yeah, no, no kidding. So it's been 13 years and there's been a lot of change 
in right. uh, Valencia at Real Life Church since you came. Was it actually meeting in a theater, like a 285-seat theater? Was it one or two services, or what was it then? We had two services, 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. Wow. Okay, you got to explain that, 9 o'clock and 10 o'clock. So it was like 18-minute messages and two songs? Exactly. It was... Um, the, the theaters out here in California, they'll start movies at 9 or 10 a.m. So they didn't wow. want us in there very, very long. We would get in around 6 o'clock to set up. We'd use as many theaters as they, they'd allow us to have. Our nursery was in the hallway. Um, I remember leading people to Christ in front of, you know, uh, the Exorcist posters as they included <laughs> that series. Um, occasionally, the movie would come on during service. No way was an automated thing. So that was awesome. And we had to be out by 1130. So we crammed as many people as we could in. We tried to do a 55 minute service. You literally walked out. The last song for the first service was the first song for the second service. Yeah. Nobody got a bathroom break. No musicians. No, wow. Not at all. Uh, and it was crazy. Um, one of my favorite stories to tell about the theater days, we had a class meeting in one of the theaters for junior high kids and they were wrestling around on the floor and one kid rolled underneath the screen and there's a little curtain that comes down. And so he rolls underneath that curtain, he rolls right back out. And when he gets up, everybody's just horrified looking at him because on his back is one of those sticky rat traps. Oh, my goodness. With with a dead rat on it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, it was phenomenal. So um, that was, I think, the day we realized we really need to build a building. We can't keep. Yeah, doing yeah, yeah. You can't keep doing it. It's not sustainable forever. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So that was uh, life in the theater. We were there about seven years total and then moved into a high school while we waited for a building to be completed. Um, the great thing about our people, they're so new to church. And so many of our people came to a movie, saw the line for church, asked people, what movie are you seeing? And they said, well, we're actually in line for church. And they would come back the next week and go to service because they thought, I know what happens in a movie theater. It can't be that dis, you know, uh, weird for a church to be in it. I, I know what I'll expect. And they started coming to church. Really? When we built our building, we built it like a movie theater. We have theater seats and cup holders, and it really looks like more of a theater than a church because of that mentality. We wanted to really capture people that had never been to church before and were maybe a little bit leery about it. But if they came to a place that looked like a theater, they might be more comfortable. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? So you were there. I mean, did you ever get past two services or you kind of hit your lid growth? Boy, that was that was our, our real frustration. We hit the lid. We could not do more services. We tried multiple theaters and staggering them and video and all that. It just never took off. And the theater was really difficult with us. Huh. Uh, we, we had a Saturday night we were doing at another location. Um, so we would we would pack into some other location, do a th uh, service and then pack into the theater on Sunday morning and do two services. And that was about it. That was our lid. We raised enough money to buy land. And then as the building was progressing, we knew we'd outgrown it and uh, outgrown the theater. So we went ahead and started to, started looking for a new place. And we found a high school that had a gymnasium they'd let us move into. And we could set up probably around. Uh, 400 to 500 chairs versus the 285 fixed seats in the movie theater. So that helped us take the next step. Wow. You know, that's a, that's a real dilemma that a lot of churches get into because in your rented space, there's limitations. You know, I know some churches are stuck in elementary schools. Some churches are stuck in high schools that don't have 
big auditoriums. Others are in theaters. I mean, we're facing that at one of our locations that we know we're going to cap out at some point, um, mostly in kid space. We just don't have enough kid space, even right. adjusting service times. And you're right. Hey, matinees start and then you've got to be out for us. It's noon, but we've got to be out. And that's a real challenge. And yet sometimes because you're facing space limitations, you don't have the critical mass to raise the money for the building you need to build. That's right. How did you navigate that? Wow, that was certainly a huge challenge for us. Um, one of the things that helped us was our partnership with our our sending church, Shepherd mm-hmm. of the Hills. Oh, what a great church that's done a lot of great work in that. Great area. church, and they were so supportive of us. Though they didn't uh, you know, pay all of our bills, they helped us have conversations with lending companies that we probably couldn't have got on our own. Mm-hmm. We developed a great relationship with CDF, Church Development Fund, and they really believed in us even more than we believed in ourselves. Uh, we weren't sure if we could raise enough money or afford what we needed to do out here because land is so expensive in California. Yeah. The zoning permits, they, they just won't let you go in and take over an empty Kmart or a Walmart or something like that. You have to you've got to build. So we it was a lot of prayer. It was a lot of conversations with people. Um, it was a lot of working with the city, developing goodwill with them. Because the city says no to a lot of churches just because they, they've seen them come and go so fast. Mm-hmm. Why would they want to allow land to go to them? So we spent a lot of time doing service projects in the community. And we wanted to become known as the church that serves. And with that in mind, it involved us going to the city hall a lot, asking for projects we could do. And I think the city became aware of us as the church that serves and the one that's here to give back rather than just take. So when it came time for them to rezone some land for a church, uh, they let us know about it. And so we positioned ourselves in such a way that they wanted to keep us around. Wow, that's good. How did you straddle the, the finances of that, though? Yeah, that was uh, that was difficult. And I guess the only thing I can say is you're going to expect this from a pastor, but it was just God because it made no sense how we were going to double uh, our payment before we ever moved in. But we, we did this campaign. <sighs> Looking back on it now, it's so it's so surprising that it even worked because we launched the campaign and then that's when the housing market crisis hit and that's when the recession hit. And people were losing jobs. We have a lot of people in real estate. They were really losing money. It was very difficult. So we actually extended our campaign for another year to allow people to continue to participate. The other key learning we had was you have to allow people to decrease their commitment. And that sounds counterintuitive, but our people are so skittish about churches and about fundraising So when we came out with the building campaign, we said, here's what we're trying to raise. We're going to ask you to make a three-year commitment, but every year we'll come back to you and allow you to either increase or decrease your commitment based on your circumstances. That helped us gain a lot of credibility with our people. And because we revisited the Mm -hmm. campaign every single year, we actually attracted new donors, new givers, because they were new to the church. And so even though the people that started out with the campaign, some of them didn't finish There were new people that came along that helped us kind of cross the finish line and got us to that point. That's interesting. You know, I've never heard of a church that has done that. And what I know about California, too, is like people are personally maxed out on their finances, like to their eyeballs, past their eyeballs. From pastor friends I have in California, they'll say often, you know, there are people putting groceries on credit cards, like and not paying them off. 
Is it, is it that tight with a lot of people who live in California? It is. It certainly was at that time because everybody had seen their equity in their homes and began to cash that in for pools and jacuzzis and cars and those kind of things. Yeah. And it really caught up with people quick. Um, I, I think what began to happen was people started looking at their lifestyle, asking, what could we live without? Mm. And though we never had huge gifts, we had a lot of really steady gifts. And we actually saw, this was kind of fascinating, we actually saw some non-believers start giving because they wanted to see how well this thing would work. And they believed in the idea and in the concept, whether or not they believed in Jesus yet. What's that, like the, the tithing thing, whether the tithing thing would work or the well, giving yeah, thing would work? So we kept or? talking about God's involvement in your life, and they weren't real sure, but they liked the idea of a permanent building. They liked the idea of some things for their kids. So they, they started making these commitments, and they were small to begin with. And then God just started doing incredible things in their lives. And it caused them to start believing in God and trusting in him and giving their lives over to him. So I never thought a capital campaign would be an evangelistic tool, but it actually became that in some. That's fascinating, Rusty. That's fascinating. You know, I've always said when you trust God with your finances, you're finally trusting God. Right. We had some interesting stories, too, of because we've we've organized our church around life groups. Right. Um, so, you know, our small group system where some, uh, well, we had this one family in our life group who decided to participate in the campaign, but they said, you know what, we're going to do this. And they jokingly said, I guess we won't buy meat some weeks. Now they were kidding, yeah. but another family in our life group took it serious and they set up, um, a system for meat to be delivered to their house on a weekly basis out of the blue and anonymously. <clears throat> and so, this couple, who was kind of on the fence with church, saw this this gesture of generosity, could not understand who would do that, but it really has solidified their faith. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's great. So you've been at Real Life Church now for 13 years. That's, mm-hmm. that's a good run in ministry. It is. You had an effective ministry to start with that you sort of inherited from Kyle Eidelman. But you've obviously had to make some changes. What's changed in the church over your tenure and what's had to change? You know, a lot of it's kind of been um, just trying to keep up. Um, When you're Hmm. living in rented space, you know this, a lot of it's based on what the, um, the, the place you're leasing from, what they do to you and how they kind of, you know, reorganize your thinking. Oh, yeah. But then you have to get really strategic about, well, how do we get together as a church? What do we put all of our emphasis on? And then you move into a building and you have this huge influx of people that are kind of, you know, outside watching. Well, I'll I'll take them serious when they finally get a serious place. Or obviously there's some people that transfer in. And then everybody has an idea of how you should use your building. Hmm. Uh, and they want to use it for various functions and studies. And, and we really felt like that would dilute what we were trying to do. So it became this this constant battle of saying no to things. I, I'd always heard about this. I'd read the books. I'd listened to the podcasts about, you know, good is the enemy of great. Mm-hmm. And you got to zero in on your vision and mission. I just felt like since we were so focused on that in the theater days, we wouldn't lose that. But we did. It was so easy to drift into taking care of people, greasing the, 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 the squeaky wheels, uh, keeping everybody happy. And I think we went through kind of a few years of just wandering in the wilderness. Of, we got this great building. All these people are showing up. Let's make them all happy. Yeah, just can't be done. And so about that time, we started to uh, 
to run into what Larry Osborne refers to as the the leadership coup. Uh, he says that around a, a church hitting around 3,500 people, there will be a significant coup on the staff or in the leadership. And we found that to be true. We kind of mm-hmm. had a staff implosion of people that had worked so hard in the theater days. And now we're in the building. We got all these people. We've hired a bunch of new staff. And there became this disconnect between the people who were here before the building and the people that have been here since the building. Yeah, It developed this tension And it kind of hit this breaking point. And we kind of had to do a reboot after that. And it really required us to focus in on our vision and mission. That was so huge for us. It was a difficult season, but it was a great season because it forced us to really get passionate about our vision. So what what was, can you, can you drill down a little bit more on the coup? I hadn't heard that theory before and it's just kind of interesting. And I'm sure there are a lot of leaders who are like, Hey, we're not at 3,500, but I, I smell a coup. What, what did that look like? Was it just competing visions? Was it like, hey, you guys don't get to do this because you weren't here in the tough days? What, what was that? I think that's it's a lot of those kind of things. For us, it was some people on staff who just really worked really hard. And they had an idea of what they would then be able to do when we got in the building. Yeah. But their leadership gifts for a church of 1,200 weren't the gifts we needed for a church of 3,500. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly they found themselves further down on the org chart. They found themselves uh, without access to maybe to me or to the ability to shape vision. And Larry talks about it in terms of when people lose power, prestige or preference, they react. And we began to see that with not just people on staff, but key volunteers, people who were just tired. Um, And then here's come here come all these new people that we've hired to manage a church of 3,500 and take us to 6,000. And they have the leadership gifts and abilities and even track record. And there was this, this culture collision that was going on. Yeah. And the new people have access to you or the new people have seats at the table that maybe the old people wanted. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. That was it. Wow. Did, did, and so there was a massive change at that time, I imagine in the staff. There were, yeah, well. there were some people that self-selected. There were some people we had to say goodbye to. There were some people in the church that just decided it was too big for them. And unfortunately, when people do that, they often spiritualize it. They often refer to it as sin or, you know, things aren't the way they used to be. And it really comes down to they lost power, preference or prestige, and they decided to react. And so we had to kind of, you know, really think through that. How are we going to manage this and how do we move forward without people thinking all is lost? Because, you know, these people that they've loved or have worked with for so long are suddenly leaving. How did you get through that period? That can't be easy for a leader. It was a, it was a rough stage for me. I've got this book coming out called When You, Then God, talking mm-hmm. about when we do certain things, then God shows up and does certain things. And a, a lot of my journey is in there. And it resulted in me realizing, I'm not sure I trusted God, mm-hmm. uh, because I kind of felt like it was all on my shoulders. And so while the church was going really well. I thought, oh, God's happy. I'm happy. All's good. When the church started having some struggles, then I started thinking, uh-oh, God's not happy. I'm not happy. Things aren't good. When really, God loved me all along. I just didn't believe it. Hmm. And so I had to really drill down on that. Uh, I went to a place called Blessing Ranch with a guy named Dr. John Walker. He really kind of uh, put my head on. i heard street. about him. He's oh, a bit he's- of a legend. He is. He's fantastic. He's moved down to Florida now, but still accessible. 
And that that pretty much saved things. And then I, I came back and I got really passionate about. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't 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 jump over that. <laughs> OK, because I, I haven't been there. But I mean, I've been in a place where as a leader and without, you know, only saying as much as you want, what were some pivotal differences? Because that's heart work. He's not like giving you new leadership hype about this is how you should lead or structure your executive team. He's doing some heart work in the work of the leader, isn't he? He is. Uh, I, I think that the key learning for me was I just didn't really believe that God loved me. Mm. I knew he, belo- I knew he loved everybody else. And I, I knew that grace was available for everybody else. I just felt like I'd never lived up to the standards I felt God had for me. Mm. And so it was this constant battle of work, 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 and maybe one day, one, maybe one day God will say, well done, good and faithful servant, yeah. opposed to God saying, let me partner with you and we'll do this together. I had to come to this realization that there was a significant part of my life I was not trusting God with. And that was me. Mm-hmm. I really felt like I had to earn it while I was preaching grace to everybody else. Wow. Once I got a hold of that and and. Dr. Walker really forced me to scour the scriptures and read all the passages of God's um, love for me and that he's not just, you know, (laughs) obligated to love me, but he actually likes me and is even impressed with me. Once I began to start to trust that, things began to take a turn. Hey, thank you so much for sharing that. I didn't didn't mean to dig too far below the surface, but... That's you know, right. as, as a leader who myself has been through a heart journey, um, right. sometimes that's the difference between being in leadership today, right, Rusty, and not being in leadership today. That's right. That's what keeps yeah. you in, definitely. Yeah, you got you to gotta grow your heart as, as your church grows and as your platform grows. Thank you. I think that spoke to a lot of people. Uh, you know, we're right there because a lot of us are achievers, a lot of us are driven, a lot of us are A-type people, and there is that sometimes, you know, for me, it was that, um, just that drive that, that, that is healthy, but it has a twist to it and, and it just needs to be untwisted sometimes. Right. And then God goes, ah, now you're, you know, now you can see who I am and who you are. That's great. So that really helped you get through that season. It did. It gave me a new set of tools, a new way to look at things. Um, I went with my wife, which was huge because then she sat through all those sessions and she can kind of echo that stuff back to me now when things get difficult. And it reminded me why, why we do what we do and what this is all about and that God wants to partner with us in this journey. And so that, uh, that became kind of the next stage. You know, the first 10 years were all about, you know, building this church, getting things going, kind of had the coup d'etat, the breakdown got patched up and came back for this next round. And it's, it's been great. Uh, it hasn't been without scars and without issues, mm. but I feel like God's working with me and I'm working with God more than working just for God. That's good to know. Uh, any other challenges you want to share? Because everybody looks at, you know, a church that like yours grows and grows and grows and says, oh, you know, that would be awesome. That's a job I want. But it's never that easy, is it? No, it's not. Um, the, the difficulty at the stage we're at right now which is yeah. what? Where, where are you right now in terms of size and structure? Yeah, we're a church of about 6,000 people. We have, I think, around 80, 85 people on staff, three campuses, one of which is online. 
which has been very, very successful for us in allowing, you know, they talk about this, this gap of people going to church. You've written about this. Yeah. Used to be three times a month. Now it's once a month. What we've discovered with the online campus, it's actually penciling out to be about two times a month now because you, you get to be a little bit more regular because you can watch online. So people are staying more engaged that way. So what that means is we've hit that stage where pretty much all the staff that I started with has, has moved on to do different things. We've hired new staff, but now what we're seeing is, is the people that started out with us in the early days, some of them are going to stay with us for life. Some of them have just felt like they've, we've gotten too big for them. Yeah. So that makes it difficult when they don't feel like they have access uh, to the pastors they once did or to me, where they feel like the place has gotten too big. I, I heard somebody say this one time, everybody's interested in reaching people to start reaching people. <laughs> and okay. I, I think about um, a time a few years ago, we brought in Bethany Hamilton. Yes, the, the soul surfer. Soul. Phenomenal. And I had no idea how big of an outreach that would be. And we like to bring in, you know, guests as a, as a, as a buzz factor and to get people to invite their neighbors. I didn't realize how huge it would be. And so a typical weekend at that time was probably around 4,000 people for us. And that weekend we had 12,000 people. Wow. So we, we, people were sitting outside, um, which we have an outdoor screen. Um, it, it was crazy pandemonium and, as a as the pastor, you're like, this is the greatest thing ever, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. But the next weekend, I remember a woman coming up to me saying, "What'd you think of last weekend?" I said, "I thought it was amazing." What'd you think? And she said, "I thought it was awful." Hmm. I said, "Why is that?" And she said, "Because I couldn't find my parking place. There was no seat for me, you know." And it reminded me, it doesn't matter what we were like in the theater days. It doesn't matter how much I talk about vision and mission. At the core of all of us, we're selfish. And she began to interpret everything by her own experience and her own pain. And inevitably, we all start to do that. And I think the greatest challenge we're facing now is how do we not let those who steer selfishness, you know, or steer in the selfish way, drive the ship? Mm. And I read this great book by uh, Samuel Chan called Leadership Pain. And he talks in this book about how it doesn't matter what size your church is. 10% of your people are devils. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that great? And he said, the problem is, is you'll spend the majority of your time trying to make 10% of your people happy. Mm. And I think I've just personally, because I can be a pleaser, personally, I've got to come to peace with the fact that I'm not going to make everybody happy. Yep. And I'm not going to satisfy those devils. And I got to be okay with that because the moment I start steering the ship in their direction, then we lose our mission, which is to reach lost people. Yep. This is, this is fascinating. So let, let's jump back a little bit. You talked about online church and what you're discovering. Right. And, and that's a very active debate. I mean, because we're, this is the year of launch for us. I mean, uh, I'm having a lot of conversations with people, everybody from, you know, the guy who used to run it at Mars Hill up in Seattle to, North Point, a little bit elevation, you know, New Spring, just trying to figure out what's going on in some other churches. And the jury's out, like even Life Church, you know, is it ministry? Is it a supplement? Is it broadcast? Is it interaction? What are you learning in terms of online church? Well, I think we're, we're constantly trying to get better at it. Um, at first, it just became something that we streamed and did nothing with. Now, 
we've added interaction with a campus pastor who's always talking with people. In some ways, it's more personal than actually coming to the campus. That's what Bobby Grinwald says. He says more ministry happens online sometimes than in a real building. It really does, because you're not near as anonymous. I mean, you can be if you change your username, I guess, but you can actually engage a lot quicker and get a a conversation about a, a topic right then with our campus pastor. We'll eventually be moving to when we do announcements and the welcome in the live setting, it will go to the campus pastor and he'll do that, you know, from a, um, a camera. Um, we're going to experiment with online um, small groups and see how those go. We just have a lot of people that travel on the weekends or people that come. This is the other interesting thing. People that come with their family on Christmas Eve or Easter, but then go back home to a place where they don't feel like they have a church they connect with. They'll watch us online. And they'll get involved that way. And it's been really neat to hear some of our staff people say, I have a brother in New York who doesn't go to church, but now we go to church together online. And he's beginning to ask questions about his faith, all because I work here and I've invited him to attend online. Eventually, I think he'll probably find a church there in New York. Mm -hmm. But at the time, this becomes an entry point for him. I think one of the surprising points for a lot of churches that have done online church, even not mega churches of, of you know, national influence, is, is that they've actually picked up a lot of viewers who are not in their catchment area. Have you right. found that? I have. I have. I think that um, some people, I don't even know how they find us, <laughs> but they do. And I'll, I'll, it's not uncommon to meet somebody in the lobby who says, I've been attending for two years and this is my first time on the physical property. Wow. And I'll ask them, oh, do you live around here? You know, you just don't, don't want to actually come over here. No, no, no. I live in Ohio or I've been stationed in Germany or whatever. And, and they found us somehow. Um, it's fascinating to see how small the world's becoming because of this. And, and I think that using an online campus only helps. Well, what do you do with people who maybe, you know, we're going to try to encourage people to plug into a local church, as I'm sure you do, if they live in Ohio or Germany or wherever. But what do, you, what do you do? Can you disciple people online? What's your current thinking on that? Well, our current thinking is we're still investigating that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Along with everyone else, right? right? These are the early days. Right, right. And I think, you know, when it first started, everybody talked about it like it was the worst thing that could ever happen to a church. And we're seeing it now as being one of the best. Uh, it used to be when I would do my little, um, uh, you know, introduction to our church class, I would ask people, how'd you get here? And it was always a friend invited me or I drove by the building. Now the number one question is, or number one answer is, I, I've been watching online for some time. Really? And so it becomes that entry point. So discipleship happens there, but I think it could probably even happen online. As much as we're staring at our phones, um, the amount of discipleship you can do by uh, Right Now Media or the devotions that we write for to go around with our messages um, the interaction we can have that way uh, seems like it's even more than you can have in a physical building. Well, and that's no surprise. I mean, we check out everything online before we go now as a culture, right? You don't go to a restaurant without checking it out online. I mean, you never even go to a concert without first being a fan of the band. I mean, right. you can listen. You, there's lots of bands you'll never see live in concert. There's lots of other bands. I mean, you've listened for years and now you finally go to a concert, right? So exactly. fascinating. I, in the past, it was, yeah, I Googled it and then I came. Yeah. Now it's, I Googled it and I've watched for a year and now I've shown up. Isn't that fascinating? Wow. Well, you've already shared a, a, a little bit about the journey, but let's talk for a moment about scale. 
because obviously, you know, as you said, leading a church of 3,500, different team, different skill set to get you to 6,000. What are some some tips? Because whether you're trying to scale from, you know, 100 to 300 or 1,000 to 3,000 or, or, you know, where you are from 3,000 to 6,000 or now probably 6 to 10, you're looking at the future. What are some key principles that you think transfer to other leaders that you've learned along the way when it comes to scale? I think the main thing is to build a good team and then to trust the team. Uh, I think that I've been able to be blessed with some amazing people around me. Um, and, and I would say this about that team. You know, Hybels talks about the three C's of hiring, you know, yeah, whether it's, yeah. it's competence and, and character. But the chemistry piece is just huge. Yeah. And we have hired incredibly competent people only to say goodbye to them in six months or a year because the chemistry was not right. Mm-hmm. And it just it just didn't fit. So the quicker you get that right chemistry, the better your team will be. And then as a leader, you just have to learn how to trust them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's harder for others than, than it is for some. It's kind of difficult for me in some areas. Um, but there's these great reminders of, you know what? Somebody else has got a better idea than I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about our, our Easter service last year. We sat down to brainstorm and I had an idea of what I wanted to you know see happen, an element I wanted to have in the service. And, and they all said, OK, we'll do it. I don't think they really believed it would be a good idea, but they they humored me. And so we, we did the service and I, I remember watching the service cause we did it multiple times thinking that is the one element that does not fit. It, <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, doesn't work. It's dated. It's not good. And it just was that clear reminder of there are smarter people here than me to do these events that we're pulling off. And I think that's true in every area of ministry. And as I, quickly as I can focus in on only what I can do, and stay out of the programming world or the finance world or even uh, some of the curriculum world. There's obviously need for my way or my, my, my words to kind of come in, have a little bit of weight, but also streamline with what I'm doing on the weekend. There's a need sometimes for me to use some of my, um, I guess, wisdom from the years of how our people react to things. But for the most part, they're going to end up having better ideas. So I think the stage mm-hmm. we're in right now is to begin trusting our team and to let them lead. How do you know when to jump in and when to step back as a leader, Rusty? Well, that's the dance that you're always in. And <laughs> yeah, I, it is, isn't it? I think there, you know, in hindsight, there have been some times that I wish I would have stepped in. The danger in that is then you start to uh, create policies. Of, okay, well, then we'll always do this, and the board's got to always approve this. Right. We've done, we've done a pretty good job of staying away from blanket statements like that. It's now more of a, okay, let's learn from that and let's just keep that in mind next time and ask that next question. I, I think that's where I am with things right now. Mm-hmm. Think just ask leaders, that next question. Leaders know that that next question that should be asked, sometimes we just don't have the time or even the, the energy to ask it. And what I'm learning is if I can ask one more question, I tend to really kind of root out my fear or understand exactly what they're trying to do, and then they feel better off about things too. Uh, that's a good insight. Another thing you said along the way was chemistry being so important. And I think that, I, my goodness, I don't know anyone who doesn't know about Heibel's three C's in leadership. We all know character, competency, and chemistry, but, but they can all mean different things. What does chemistry mean to you? Like, do you have a litmus test for like, ah, oh, we got chemistry? <laughs> um, 
I think for us, we're, we're just, uh, we're pretty raw. We're pretty authentic. We don't have a problem sharing our, our pain and our problems. In fact, for you to even ask about my, my journey at Blessing Ranch, I don't really have a problem talking about that. I talk a lot about that in the book and it just doesn't really bother me. And so when I look at chemistry, I'm looking for how quickly can you share your pain? Mm. How quickly can you talk about your failures? Um, what hills are you willing to die on? Because there are some hills we just don't die on and other ones that, that we do. I, I think that's a, a big part of it. You know, I, I, our staff loves to have fun and, you know, play jokes on each other and mm. to, to laugh a lot. And so I'll look at them in some of these settings and ask, you know what, can they, can, can they participate in that? Do people like talking with them? Do they laugh easily? Yeah. Um, they take things personal. Just just things like that is what I look for. We we talk about sometimes the airport layover test. If you had a six hour layover at an airport, would you want to hang out with this person or right. would you be looking for ways to get away? Exactly. And that can be very clarifying. <laughs> um, how about work life balance? I mean, you've had to change a lot over the years. I mean, leading a church your size now is different than when you started. Um, how, and, and, you know, you got a family, how has this all changed for you? How have you handled work-life balance? Well, I, I was blessed in the early days to read the book that we've all read now, uh, choosing to cheat mm-hmm. and to hear Andy's story about being home at four thirty. And in the early days of being here at real life, we had a newborn at home and then eventually added another one. And so the need for me to be home at four thirty was, was huge. Um, and, and so I just made that promise to my wife. And what I love about my one of the many things I love about my wife is that she loves our church. She is involved in our church, but she also knows the the difference between church and home and just doesn't let me bring it home. Mm. And so when I get home, you know, uh, she'll let me know if I if I'm on my phone too much and. I try not to check email at home because you know how it is. You get that one bad email and it ruins the night. So yep, uh, I, I'm learning to really prioritize table time, you know, spending time with the kids at the table, asking questions, playing games. We started playing cards. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, which has been kind of funny. My, my, uh, my parents and in-laws taught my kids how to play rummy. And so we've been playing that as a family. And it's just great because the TV's not on. It involves us talking, interacting, you know, just creating those kind of uh, those rhythms that I that I know that you are, are definitely a proponent of. But from vacations, weekends, Sabbath time, all those kind of things are just built in finish lines for me. Of OK, this is when I'll be home. I try not to work a lot from home because then it just it just muddies the waters for me. Ah, that's a good word. Hey, I know there are some leaders who are saying, well, it's great that you have a big church, but California has a reputation for being tough ground in ministry, right? Not, not, not church growth isn't automatic. If you look at David Kinnaman's research, you know, right. Californians are sort of leading the way in a post-Christian, post, you know, like very secular worldview. Um, how, ha- what is your experience of that been as a church planter in, you know, the outskirts of L.A.? Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Um, when I was in Kentucky looking at California, I thought, man, they are so progressive and everything. So when I move out there to do ministry, I'm going to have to just absolutely be crazy creative, all kinds of progressive ideas to capture their attention. Hmm. And I found it to be just the opposite. 
Uh, what I noticed in the Midwest was people are progressive with their faith, but they are conservative with their lifestyle. And when I got out here, I noticed that people are progressive with their lifestyle, but they're conservative with any kind of spirituality or faith that they have. Really? Either the people I'm dealing with are either they've never been to church before, but they have an idea of what it should be like, or they grew up Catholic. And so what we discovered was we don't have to be the most creative thing in the church world. We just have to be a little bit more engaging than maybe the Catholic church they grew up in. Mm. Because what I've noticed was when we really pushed the envelope, it freaked people out. They didn't know what to do with it because (laughs) they thought this isn't what I thought church would be like. But if we took, you know, the simple kind of idea of church, but then just made it applicable, made it helpful, um, talked about everyday issues, then people walked away thinking, now I get it. And so we kind of had to find our right balance there. Um, we happen to live in a culture uh, that, yeah, it's highly unchurched, but a lot of it is de-churched because yeah. they have the Catholic thing. And so it's kind of, you know, changing the way people view God and certainly Jesus, uh, confession and uh, the pastor role and their role in ministry. And the, 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 the difficult thing is that they don't have that history or background you can draw from. But yet the blessing is that as well. And what I've noticed is out here in California and a lot of places that are kind of uh, in that unchurched world, people are a lot more um, open to anything. Hmm. And so because, I mean, we're in California, it's it's not a problem for people to talk about their multiple marriages, multiple shrinks and and multiple pills they take. They just are pretty open about everything. And so when you talk about church, they'll say, oh, I'll try anything once and they'll give it a shot. Hmm. And so the better you can do at connecting them once they're here, the more likely they are to stay. So if you're talking to church leaders who are today in a 285-seat auditorium who can't imagine leading a bigger church right now, what's one thing you would say or two things you would say to encourage them? Well, I would tell them I never thought it could happen either. (laughs) (laughs) But I would also tell them, find mentors. Find people around you who have been to that next level and can help you get there. I think the difficult thing for a person in a movie theater of 285 seats is we're all reading the books from the guys of churches of, of 20,000 people. Yeah. And it creates this, uh, uh, you know, this, this fear factor of, a, first of all, I've got to do that and I've got to be just like them. And then that creates this tension uh, with your staff and board members because you're trying to run the place like it's 20,000 people when really it's 300. <laughs> so find that next level up, find that guy and ask him how he got there and take those steps and then find the next guy. And those stair steps have really helped us. We've really relied a lot on consultants. Uh, I know you've had Hayden Shaw on your podcast. Yeah, before. we have. He was huge for us in the days in the, in the high school as we're getting ready to move in the building. Uh, my friend Tim Harlow told us about Hayden and said, bring him in and let him talk to you about just some changes you need to make. And he really helped us process the change we were about ready to go through moving into a building and get zeroed in on our values. That was great information for us. Hmm. So we got in and it went great. Things took off. And then we went and got another consultant. And then recently we worked with intentional churches and they've been phenomenal for us. So constantly asking the questions of not just what's next, let's go do it, but What's next? How do we get there? And who can help us navigate that? 
Yeah, you and I both, man, big fans of consultants. It's just another view because often you're blind to your next step and what you need to do, right? That's right. That's right. That's good. And they don't have to be high paid or running mega churches. They can be the guy who's just a stage ahead. That's such a good word. So, Rusty, tell us about your book and tell us where people can find you online and learn more. Well, the book is really a result of my own personal journey of figuring out, does God really really like me? Does he love me? Is he really going to work with me in things? And it's also a result of just kind of reading through the scriptures, seeing all these statements where God says, uh, if you do this, then I will do this. Hmm. And I, I often viewed much of the Bible as a bunch of thou shouts or a bunch of never minds, you know, <laughs> things that were just empty threats or blanket promises and I think because of that, I lost my belief that God could love everybody, especially me. And so it sent me down this journey of really discovering what are these statements where it says, when you do this, then God will do this. It's a partnership. And it's just been a wild ride for me personally, but also for our church to walk through some of these things together. And so uh, Tyndale was was kind enough to allow me to write these things down and put them out. It comes out in April. But if you go to our website, whenyouthengod.com, you can actually pre-order it. And if you if you sign up, we'll send you the first chapter of it free uh, and you can start reading right away. But uh, it's it's been a, a, just a great journey uh, with God and seeing his partnership, not only just in ministry, but in life as well. Uh, so that would cool. be one be one location you can go to, whenyouthengod.com. But the other is through our website here at the church, reallifechurch.org. And you can watch all of our messages. You can see what's going on here uh, and interact as well. Rusty, thank you so much. I know you've encouraged a lot of people. And thanks for sharing from your heart and your personal experience. Well, thank you, Carrie. It's been a, it's been a real honor to be here. I appreciate it. Well, hey, wasn't that a fascinating conversation? I just love listening to people's stories and seeing how God through twists and turns and up times and down times, manages to build his church. So I hope that was encouraging for you. You can get all the information you need, including all the links that you would have heard mentioned in this episode at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 95. Make sure you head on over there. Leave a comment if you have any questions or anything like that. We'd love to engage with you. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, why don't you head on over and do that? Just go to iTunes or um, whatever device you use and hit subscribe. And uh, we'd be happy to drop this into your inbox every Tuesday. And then as we roll out some bonus episodes this summer, you won't miss them. How about that? So super excited for that. Next week, we are coming back with Larry Osborne. I had a fascinating conversation. Larry's a bit of an icon in the church. And I'd never met him before until we had this conversation. I'll tell you, he blew my socks off. So make sure you're there. We got Frank Beeler coming up. Perry Noble's coming back onto the podcast again in the next few months. Kara Powell, so many more. If you subscribe for free, you won't miss a thing. And we'll talk to you next Tuesday. Thanks so much. And I really hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.